As we continue in the series in Exodus, the reading this morning is from Exodus 11 through Exodus 12, verse 13. The final plague. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who was behind the handmill, <coughs> excuse me, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout the, the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog will growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. The Passover. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons According to eat what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning." Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, 
both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is God's word. Keep your Bibles open to Exodus 11 and 12, and let's pray and ask God to meet us here in his word. Gracious God, again, we praise you that you are a God who speaks. Lord, would you open our eyes and our ears to see and to hear you this morning? Would your spirit take your word And change our hearts with it. In Jesus' name, amen. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be saved? We Christians like to use that word a lot. You know, is he saved? Is she saved? When were you saved? And what we're usually asking with that question is when someone became a Christian when they started their relationship with Christ. I generally tell people when they ask me, when were you saved, that I was saved in 1996. I grew up going to church, uh, learning all of the Bible stories, even had the lead in the church play in fourth grade. But it wasn't until my junior year of high school Uh, that I started a personal relationship with God, that I truly believed for myself that God was real and that Christ was my Savior, and that He had done it all. He was my hope. In other words, that I was saved. And Christians like to put it that way, to talk about being saved, because salvation is at the core of our identity. We are a saved people. But what does that mean? What are we saved from? How are we saved? And what for? To answer those questions adequately, it won't do to simply turn to John 3.16 or Ephesians 2 or something like that. Those are wonderful verses. But to understand even what those verses are talking about, you really have to go back to the Old Testament. The idea of salvation does not begin in the New Testament. It permeates the Old. If you were to ask a devout Israelite in the Old Testament period, are you saved? The answer would have been a most definite yes. And if you ask them, how do you know? You would be taken aside and sat down somewhere while your friend recounted a long and exciting story, the story of the Exodus. As Christopher Wright puts it, indeed, it is the Exodus that provided the primary model of God's idea of salvation, of redemption, not just in the Old Testament, but even in the New, where it is used as one of the keys to understanding the meaning of the cross of Christ. 
If you're just joining us, we've been working our way through this story of Exodus, this long and exciting story. And today we come to what can be described not only as the climax and and pivot point of the book, but in terms of God's redemptive work, it is the climax and pivot point of the entire Old Testament story, the Passover This is the point at which Israel comes to know the Lord, not just as creator or king, but as savior. They come to know God as their savior. So in terms of the story so far, Israel came to Egypt as a small family of refugees looking for relief from a devastating famine in the land. Uh, And in that in time, this the small family of refugees became a great nation, uh, only to be enslaved and exploited and systematically murdered by Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who then decided they were a threat. Uh, But God promised to come down and rescue them, to not leave them in their slavery and their suffering. He promised to make himself known to them in a special way through an act of salvation. Uh, and, the reason, and for that reason, he sends Moses, he sends Aaron to lead the people of Israel out, to speak to Pharaoh, to tell him to let God's people go, and to demonstrate God's supreme power and authority through a series of plagues, these great signs and wonders. But as we saw last week, the purpose of those signs and wonders was not really to convince Pharaoh to let Israel go, at least not yet. Instead, the first nine plagues were designed specifically to make Yahweh known to both Egypt and Israel. God was making himself known through those plagues. That's why he used ten and not one. Travis walked us through those last week and and showed us five things that we come to know about the Lord through the plagues that That Yahweh is the Lord and he has no rival. That Yahweh is unique. There is no one like the Lord our God. That he's the creator. He uses the natural world as an implement of his judgment in freeing his people. The earth is the Lord's. That God will accomplish all that he intends. There's nothing that happens in this story that does not accord to his will. And that God is the sanctuary that all people need. He himself is the shelter that will protect people from his own righteous judgment. And so all of those lessons carried through those nine plagues come to a climax in one final plague. Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. A tenth plague that is unique. It's set apart from the first nine. Something different is happening here. It's, it's set apart structurally. It, you know, the first nine plagues followed a pretty specific pattern. That pattern goes out the window when you get to number ten. It takes just as much time to describe from warning to fulfillment just as much space to describe the tenth plague as the entire first nine put together. So something significant is happening here. Even, you know, 
the, the institution of new rituals in order to remember this final plague. Something is unique. And so this is the climax. This is the plague that will set Israel free. The plague through which Egypt will come to know God by name in their experience of his judgment. And Israel will come to know him by name in their experience of salvation. This is where Israel comes to understand what it means to be saved. What they're saved from, how they're saved, and what they're saved for. And here, too, uh, we get one of our clearest windows into the nature of salvation. Namely, that through Christ, our Passover lamb, we are saved from God, by God, and for God. Through Christ, our Passover lamb, we are saved from God, by God, and for God. But that only makes sense when we understand the promise of his judgment, which he is executing on Egypt. And that's where our story starts in chapter 11. So look there again with me, chapter 11. In the first three verses there, God prepares the people uh, to get ready to leave. They're to ask their Egyptian neighbors for silver and gold jewelry in order to plunder the Egyptians. Now think of it as reparations for centuries of slavery. Uh, They are uh, asking for these precious goods and, and the people are going to give them willingly because God is giving Israel favor in their sight. He is showing them just who he is and who his people are. They have seen what God's done so far. Moses has become, quote, very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, in the sight of the people. And so, so they're going to, to not go out empty-handed. But Moses has not so great in Pharaoh's sight. That remains the problem. Pharaoh's heart is still hard because God continues to harden it. Remember that, that God's not trying to convince Pharaoh to do something. He is preparing him for his just punishment for what he's already done. And we see the shape that, of that punishment in the warning in verses 4 through 8. Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. God is going to bring his judgment on Egypt through a final plague, the plague of the firstborn. And in doing so, he will make a clear distinction between Egypt and his people. There will be no more question. But why this plague? Why does the judgment take this shape? I mean, this is a harsh form of judgment. Punishing Pharaoh in Egypt by killing the firstborn sons. Well, it goes back to chapter 4. What God told Moses even before he had arrived back in Egypt. Chapter 4, 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, 
Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. God did not pull the idea of the tenth plague out of thin air. It is a direct response and reciprocation to Pharaoh's offense. The punishment fits the crime. You stole, enslaved, and killed my firstborn son Israel, my children. This is your just punishment. Through this final plague, Egypt will come to know not only that Yahweh has no rival, that he's unique and the creator and the sovereign king and sanctuary, they will come to know that he is a righteous judge. He is a righteous judge. He does not let sin go unpunished. He will not let an evil regime like Pharaoh's carry the day. And that was true for ancient Egypt, and it is true in every day and age. For every dictator and tyrant, Hitler did not win. ISIS will not win. Boko Haram will not win. Abortion will not win. Racism will not win. Hatred, violence, evil, and oppression in any shape will not carry the day because God is a righteous judge. And he is making himself known to be that. And that's what we expect of him. We want justice. You know, as much as the idea of judgment has, has, you know, uh, become out of fashion these days. Uh, We all long for it when we are the victims or when we watch someone as a helpless victim. We want justice. We have a right to justice and the just punishment of our offenders. The problem today is that we've made our right to justice bigger than God's right to receive justice. And He is owed that justice whenever his creatures rebel against him. But he will judge sin because he's both holy and loving. Both of those things. Holy and loving. He is holy. That means he is above us in his majesty. He's over us in his authority. He is beyond us in moral perfection. And therefore he cannot abide with sin and he cannot ignore it or leave it unpunished. I mean, imagine the criticism of of a judge who always declared somebody not guilty, no matter what. I mean, that guy would be run out of town. There would be, you know, Twitter campaigns to get him removed from his bench. We, We, you know, what a miscarriage of justice. What an insensitivity to the victims of those crimes that he's letting these people off for. What a failure to love. And when we understand it like that, we see that that God's wrath really is an expression of his love. It's an expression of his love. Israel is my firstborn son. That is love. Let my son go or I will kill your firstborn son. That is love also expressed in justice by the one who has the authority to do it. And so Pharaoh has received his final warning through this 
final plague, Egypt will come to know that Yahweh is a righteous judge. But through this exact same plague, Israel will come to know that Yahweh is a mighty Savior. What does that salvation look like? Those, uh, that's what we see in chapter 12 when we come to the Passover. That something new and world-changing is happening in chapter 12 is evident from the first few verses. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. You know, what God is about to do is so big and revolutionary that they are told to completely revise their calendar to now revolve around this day. Not unlike what eventually happened in the modern calendar of revising it to revolve around the birth of Christ. Every date, every calendar that hangs on every wall in this world is a reminder of the centrality of Christ in history. And so it was for Israel. The Passover was to be this pivotal moment. But in the instructions and the events that that follow in chapter 12, we see not just a historical picture of what God once upon a time did in saving ancient Israel. We see the theological pattern for how God accomplishes his redemption for all people in all times, ultimately through Christ. And what we see teaches us three things about salvation, what it means to be saved. Namely, that God's people are saved from God, by God, and for God through the Passover lamb. From God, by God, for God, through the Passover lamb. So look again at the instructions that that Dave read earlier for us. In verse 3, the the whole congregation is to take a lamb according to the father's house, a lamb for a household. So everybody's supposed to get involved. This is not just something for the priests who haven't actually been set apart yet to be priests, but the whole nation. And then in verse 5, notice the quality of the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You can take it from the sheep or from the goats. It has to be a perfect fit offering. And what are they supposed to do with this thing? Verse 6, they they keep it until the 14th day of the month and, and then... They're going to kill the lambs at twilight. They're going to take some blood and, and put it on the doorposts and on the, on the cross piece above the door of every house. And then they're going to eat the lamb. The, the, they're going to eat it that night, roasted on fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. It gives them instructions for how to do that. And they're going to eat it in a hurry. Verse 11, in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, because it is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will execute, not excuse me, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord and the blood shall be a sign for you. On the houses where you are, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's why we call it the Passover. I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. 
So what is going on in this very intense and instruction-heavy ritual? I mean, obviously Israel's being rescued from Egypt. They, they finally leave the land, and they've got to eat in haste, be ready to go. But why does their exit involve a special meal? I mean, wouldn't it make more sense to spend that evening packing if you're going to be, you know, leaving that night? Why this special meal? And, and, and why a sacrifice? And why paint your doors with blood? What sense does any of that make? It's typical to think of the Exodus as Israel being, slave, uh, being saved from slavery in Egypt. And of course, that's very true. They, they have been in desperate need of, of God's deliverance and, and God's promise to save them, and it finally happens in this chapter. But what's interesting, when you get to the instructions for the Passover here, the focus is not on saving Israel from Egypt. It's on saving Israel from God. The blood of the Passover lamb doesn't shield them from the wrath of Pharaoh, but the wrath of God, who is sending his destroying angel to execute his judgment. Have you ever noticed that this is the only plague in which Israel has to do something to avoid being affected by it. You know, the first nine plagues, none of them had any impact on Israel. We're told that specifically a couple of times. You know, darkness in the land of Egypt, light in Goshen where Israel lives. And it's not like they had to do anything for that to happen. But here it's different. In order to avoid being affected by the plague, they have to do something. Because the nature of this plague is different. The first nine ranged from being really annoying to pretty harsh. But here we see God judging sin. He is taking life in order to execute his judgment on Egypt and her gods. And that raises an important question. that If, if God is now acting to judge sin... What about Israel? Aren't they sinners too? Aren't they also guilty of, of breaking God's law and his commands? And in fact, later on, you read in Joshua, they, some of them had been worshiping the gods of Egypt. So, so how are they going to survive the coming storm if they too are guilty of sin? Now, they need a refuge. They need protection. They need a worthy substitute. They need a lamb to take the place of their sons, bearing the punishment for their sin. A lamb whose blood will cover their homes, cleansing them from God, whose sacrifice nourishes them and sets them apart for the service God is calling them to. Through the Passover lamb, Israel is being saved from God, by God, and for God. They are being saved from God. When we understand salvation through the Passover, we see that Israel's greatest problem is not being enslaved to Egypt. It's not the oppression, exploitation, violence, and humiliation that they've received. As horrible as all of that is... That's not their greatest problem. 
Their greatest problem is that when it comes to their sinful hearts, they're no different than Egypt. They're no different. They too have fallen short, which means that they are just as deserving of this final plague as Egypt is. of God's wrath against sin and that they need to be saved not just from Egypt, but also from God and his wrath. And so it is with us. We think that our biggest problem is homework on the weekends or Friday afternoon traffic. Or or more seriously, being rejected by someone we love and trust. Or losing our livelihood or, or our home or our health or our life. Facing cultural and systemic evil. And all of those are real, real painful burdens. But none of them hold a candle to our greatest problem. The fact that left to ourselves, we have fallen short of God. We deserve the full weight of his wrath for our sin. It doesn't matter if we've grown up going to church or or hearing the stories or even assuming that all this is true. Israel was just as wicked as Egypt. And we are no different left to ourselves today. But through the Passover lamb, we are saved from God. The lamb died in place of the son. The punishment that Israel deserved for their sin and which Egypt actually receives is poured out on the lamb instead of on the son. He is a substitute, which is significant not only for rescuing the the firstborn children in every home, but really for the whole nation. Remember what God said to Moses. Israel is my firstborn son. The whole nation is being covered by the blood of the lamb. And that lamb was a pattern and a sign for a true and better Passover lamb to come. Jesus Christ. It is no mistake that that what Christ did on the cross is frequently described in the language of this Passover story. Paul calls Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed in 1 Corinthians. Or in 1 Peter 1, it says that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That's an echo of these Passover instructions. Like the Passover lamb, Jesus offered himself as a perfect substitute for us. He gave his life in exchange for ours. Again, Peter says in chapter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus took the righteous judgment that we deserved. He paid the penalty in full. He exhausted the wrath of God against our sin so that we could be set free. Declared not guilty vindicated, acquitted of all charges, free 
to follow him. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Through Christ our Passover lamb, we are saved from God and his just punishment. And yet Israel was not only saved from God, through the Passover lamb they're also saved by God. That's the marvel and beauty of God's salvation. God himself provides all that is necessary to deliver us from his own wrath. He doesn't tell us to figure it out. He does all of the work himself through a substitutionary sacrifice offered in our place. Israel didn't figure out the whole lamb thing, you know, themselves. It's not like an action movie where, you know, someone finds out that doomsday is fast approaching and everybody pools together their creativity and ingenuity to come up with a way to survive the coming apocalypse. And, and no, God's the one who told them what to do. Covering themselves by the blood was his idea. Nor was there anything that Israel had already done to earn them a ticket out. In contrast to Egypt, Israel was saved by grace. God rescued them because he had chosen them to be his people and promised that to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Notice that in the story, God does not come to Israel first while they're enslaved in Egypt and say, hey, here's my law. If you can keep these commands, I'll come back and save you. Now, while they were still sinners, the Passover lamb was sacrificed. God gave them the law later so that they would know how to live as his people. But they were saved by grace. Nor did he say to them in Egypt, if you can clean up your life, if you can stop all this tomfoolery and stop sinning and, and worshiping idols and not trusting me, if you can get your act together, then I'll save you. While they were still sinners, the Passover lamb was sacrificed. And it was the blood of the lamb smeared on the doorpost that cleansed them from their sin. It's not something they did. Sin stains us. It pollutes our lives, our relationships with God and with each other. It makes us unfit for God's presence. It's this polluting Thing. And, and, and there's no detergent on earth that is able to wash that clean. Only the blood of a perfect sacrifice offered according to God's word can cleanse us from sin and give us confidence to enter God's presence. And so Israel could not and would not save themselves. They were saved from God by God through the blood of the Passover lamb. And again, the exact same thing is true for us. Uh, being cleansed from our sin and, and brought into a relationship with God is, is not something that we earn or figure out on our own. It's not some achievement that we unlock, like a new level in a video game or something like that. Boom, made it, made it, figured it out. Rather, for by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. We're not going to sit around trading stories in heaven of how we unlocked the code to knowing God. 
we will be falling at the feet of our Savior in gratitude for receiving something we did not deserve. And because we're cleansed not by what we do, but by Christ's blood, we actually have confidence before God to do that. Our sins have been washed away. We no longer need hide in shame or fear. Instead, we have confidence to enter the holy places, God's very presence, by the blood of Jesus. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, we're saved from God, by God, through the blood of Christ, our Passover lamb. But not only does the Passover show us that that Israel is saved from God and by God, but also that they are saved for God through the Passover lamb. Remember again, God's word to Moses in Exodus 4. Israel's my firstborn son. I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. There's a purpose woven into Israel's salvation. He's not just rescuing them because they're in a bad situation, though they are. He's rescuing them because they have a purpose, a mission. They have a vocation as his children, and Pharaoh's getting in the way of that. Let my son go that, they, that he may serve me. They are saved in order to serve, to serve God and his kingdom. Why did they take time? to eat a special meal that night that they were leaving instead of packing their bags and stuff. I mean, that's just counterintuitive. Unless that meal has a purpose. And when you look at the elements of the Passover meal, it's very similar to the kinds of meals that God gave the priests later in Exodus 29 and Leviticus 8. A meal designed to consecrate them or to set them apart for service to God. Now, what that service looks like will be spelled out later when we get to the giving of the covenant. But as one uh, author summarizes, the sacrifice of the animal atones for the sin of the people. The blood smeared on the doorpost purifies those within. And eating the sacrificial meat consecrates those who consume it. By participating in the Passover ritual, the people sanctify themselves as a holy nation to God. This is a meal that sets them apart. They are unique, set apart for service to God. Through the Passover lamb, Israel is saved from God, by God, and for God. And again, the same is true for us. Salvation in Christ is not primarily about what we get out of it. It's not just being rescued from a bad eternal situation, from hell. Though it does do that. Or from bad situations on earth. Though sometimes it might. It's not primarily about making our lives happier. Though there is no happiness that can compare with that which we find in Christ. Salvation is, hands down, the absolute best thing for all of us. 
but it is not ultimately about us. It is about God, his glory, his service, his renown, his majesty, his mercy, his presence on display. For decades, the church in North America has followed the playbook of our consumeristic culture and sought to design church and communicate Christianity to address one dominant question. What's in it for me? That's become the the question around which all of this has begun to revolve. How will this make my life better? How is it relevant? How will it help me in, in practical daily ways? And there's nothing wrong with wanting to understand that, uh, how Christianity is relevant, what difference it makes, how it applies. There's nothing wrong with asking those questions, uh, especially if, if all of this is rather foreign or new. But what's happened is that by letting that become the dominant question, much of, of biblical Christianity has become enslaved to the modern consumer, making salvation all about us and what we get out of it instead of all about God and what he gets out of it, his glory. Turning God into, as, it, as it's been described, something like a, a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, and does not become too personally involved in the process. That's what we have made God through our consumeristic tendencies. But we are saved in order to serve, not to be served. Just as Christ, our Savior, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what's in it for me? How about death? Dying to self, dying to sin, Dying to this world, dying to my flesh, dying to selfish desires, to dreams, to my plans, my way, my reputation, my convenience, my life. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And where was he going when he picked up his cross? He was going to die. Follow Christ in honoring God with our whole lives, not being compartmentalized between this life and the next. Follow Christ in laying down our lives for the other, others within our church family, others outside who need to see the love and beauty and grace of Christ. Follow Christ in speaking truth and standing against evil and pointing everyone everywhere to the power of the cross. Through Christ, our Passover lamb, we are saved from God, by God, and for God. He does all of the work. He calls the shots. He gets the glory. And we get him. We get him. An unending, intimate 
eternal relationship with God, together with his people, to serve him on earth and to enjoy him forever in his new creation to come. A relationship that we don't deserve, but that is ours forever through the blood of Christ, our Passover lamb. Salvation, being saved, is ultimately about getting God. Imagine being in Israel's sandals that night to hear the screams of grief coming from Egyptian households, to hold your firstborn son in your arms, knowing full well that you deserve the same end, and then to see the blood trickling down the doorpost. The lamb died in place of your son. You will leave Egypt tomorrow morning as a family. Israel will leave as a nation because God has taken the punishment you deserve and poured it out on a substitute in your place. Saved from God, by God, for God. And now think about the cross. Think about what Christ suffered for us the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Think about your sin. Every evil thought, every sinful deed, crowning his blood-stained brow. Think about your sin and then think about his grace. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. That is the song of a saved people. Or another one that we're about to sing. Amazing grace. Not just grace, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. What does it mean to be saved? It is to be saved from God, by God, and for God through Christ, our Passover lamb. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, we recognize that there really is nothing that makes us any different from anyone else in this world, even from ancient Egypt, apart from your saving grace. Thank you that you have not left us in our sin, that you did not look at us in our rebellious hearts and say, good riddance. But that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that we have confidence before you, having been acquitted, acquitted, uh, 
vindicated, declared not guilty of our sin, having been cleansed by Christ's blood, we have confidence before you and we have a call to follow you and make your name known. And it's only possible through the blood of the Lamb. And so we praise you and pray that we would see that, that, that your spirit would take that truth and drill it into our hearts. That we would never be tempted to think that, that we're accepted because of what we do. That, that we would always look back to the cross and then look forward in faithfulness. We praise you for your son. Amen. We stand.
For worshiping with us this morning. I invite you downstairs uh, immediately following the service for our uh, luncheon and pre annual meeting. There are uh, documents, uh, budgets, and nominations and such available in the foyer if you grab those on your way down. If you would like prayer, uh, members of our prayer team are available near the organ. And now receive the benediction To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen.